I can't tell you how excited I am to talk about Empire Strikes Back with you. <laughs> this podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 9 of the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where we've been through death and life together. I am Glenn Butler, and this week I am furious. Furious, I tell you! In continuing our 50th anniversary dive into the Star Trek vault to examine all of the feature films, we have reached a turning point. A point when Star Trek was hijacked by people who weren't true fans who just wanted to take a series about exploration and acceptance and deliberately do away with that philosophy. Now, instead of examining anything with any deeper meaning, it's reduced to a meaningless shoot 'em up kick-splode action movie, all about violence and revenge. The adventures of the Space Navy that still manages to be a retread of the TV show while cynically killing a major element of it. That's right, folks. We are talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Now, I gotta calm down. And to do that, I'm gonna go to someone who always keeps me calm. My brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott, aren't you dead? God, I wish. (laughs) We also have a guest on this show. I said we would have guests for a lot of these Star Trek ones, and we are making good here. Someone from the Place to Be Nation, from the Place to Be Comics section, Mr. Todd Weber. Todd, what's the best message someone has sent you on your birthday? Ah, uh, the best message somebody sent me. They gave me a pair of reading glasses, Glenn. <laughs> excellent, excellent. That will help you a great deal. So we are talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, the movie that was made because Gene Roddenberry got kicked off of Star Trek. And so Paramount brought in Harv Bennett, who had been the producer of The Mod Squad, I believe, and Nick Meyer, whose previous accomplishments had been writing a uh, Sherlock Holmes book. And what was the movie he made? Did he make Time After Time? I believe he did, yeah. Right. So he had been a a big Sherlock Holmes fan, and as we can see in Star Trek II, he uh, thinks he knows a thing or two about literature. (laughs) Well, Star Trek II sort of takes... It sort of takes on Star Trek from a different angle, where the original series is often described as wagon train to the stars. Star Trek II is really where it becomes Horatio Hornblower in space. Oh, yeah. A lot of the creative decisions make this the Space Navy, basically. The uh, the uniforms look a lot more militaristic. The um, general feel of it uh, has a lot of those naval elements. The space battle is basically a submarine battle complete with the uh, low visibility and almost radar screen-like displays at at some points. Well, that's not exactly new. I mean, Balance of Terror was a submarine battle. Yeah, it was, but combined with a lot of the other elements, it really adds up to a bit of a shift. Of course, that also introduces a little bit of uh, three-dimensional thinking in the movements of the 
spaceships as well. Yeah, that that nebula fight or that that nebula um, dogfight, I guess is the best way to, to describe it. it. Yeah, I guess you could kind of see it as a sea battle with not just going left to right. You're, you've got the dimension of above and behind, and it, it's kind of a cool part of thinking about these ship to ship battles that you would see in Star Trek. Never really saw it in the original series that way. No, the the original series space battles uh, number one were a little sparse and were rather two-dimensional because of budget reasons and effects limitations, mainly. Yeah, effects advanced quite a far way between 1967 and 1982. Yes, for sure. And between 1967 and 1979, when a lot of the effects in this movie were made. (laughs) That's a low blow. Well, for at least the first act of the movie. I mean, that's part of this movie being made a lot cheaper than the first one, is that they reused a lot of the effects shots, to great effect, really, because especially in a day before home video, people hadn't really seen that those scenes in a few years, and with creative editing, I mean, they truncated a lot of the effects scenes greatly. I mean, there's the, um, the scene early in the movie when Kirk is being brought to the Enterprise, and what was a five-minute scene in Star Trek One. And what I thought is, you know, we talked about there was was a pretty good use of, you know, the music and the visuals and everything for five minutes in Star Trek One is here, truncated to about 30 seconds. Well, that's sort of the story of the difference between these two movies. What in Star Trek One they dwelled on for five minutes, in this movie they present it in 30 seconds. It's much more efficient, it's much more exciting, it's much more interesting because there's a lot more there because they don't dwell on the same thing for five minutes at a time. It's, it's not just model porn that Star Trek The Motion Picture was, where you're looking at these miniatures in great, great, great detail for ten minutes at a time. Like, oh my gosh, we're on the big screen now. Oh, look, it's the Galileo. <laughs> Todd, I'm wondering, since you are our guest here, where are you uh, kind of coming from on, on Star Trek and on this movie in particular? I have very strong feelings about Star Trek too. I think it saved the franchise as far as commercially, and um, it, it got me a lot more excited about the franchise compared to a very lackluster, you know, I had weird, weird feelings about the motion picture. The motion uh, picture was a weird, weird movie. It's it's weird, and honestly, I think this is truer too, even though we, you know, you're complaining about the, the naval military aspects of, of this. I think it's a little more true, it's a little more honest to the core of the original series, at least as far as the characters go. These are the characters. This movie brings back the characters in a way that the uh, motion picture didn't. As far as all, all everybody, even Chekhov, everybody has their own little moment at shine, and it's really great, great Mr. Spock film that we didn't see as much in the motion picture. Motion picture is telling the story about Kirk and, and Decker and V'ger, and Spock has his moment where he's denied true logic, but this movie, you know, he has this great, great arc of being Jim's friend, and he just, it, it's more honest to the characters that we saw in the original series compared to the, to the motion picture. I love Star Trek too. I still watch it all the time. Like you said on our last episode, Glenn, I think a lot of people remember the original series through the lens of what Roddenberry cloaked himself in in the 70s and 80s. Original, yeah, that's true. The original series wasn't a ponderous contemplation of utopia, like some of Star Trek One was, like a lot of what Roddenberry talked about in the 70s and 80s. The original series was an action romp. 
They didn't have as many space battles because effects were prohibitive, but they had fist fights every episode. They had fight scenes. They had space battles as much as they could. You know, the ship firing phasers at each other. The original series was not as different from Star Trek II and the later movies as a lot of people make it out to be. Yeah, for sure. The um, moments of contemplation were a little uh, fewer and farther between on the original series. And really, the uh, utopianism that people attribute to it, we did mention a little, grew through the 70s and especially into the 80s. And whatever utopianism there was in the original series... Uh, and there was a little bit. I tend to attribute more to people like Gene Kuhn and Dorothy Fontana. I don't remember. Did Gene Kuhn do the rewrites on City on the Edge of Forever? I think Gene Kuhn did the rewrites on most episodes between about the middle of season one and the middle of season two. Yeah, pretty much the ones that Roddenberry didn't write, probably. Star Trek II is sort of an interesting study from that perspective. Because as things exist for a while, they evolve, naturally. It's not going to be the same thing now as it's going to be in five years as it's going to be in ten years. And Star Trek fandom sort of went through that, especially once the show went off the air and there was no, like, one guiding light of the fandom. It sort of started to develop on its own, independent of any creator or official thing. You know, once Star Trek went off the air in 69 and you had the growth of fandom in the 70s with all the zines and the thick and the conventions and all of that... The interpretation of Star Trek and Star Trek fandom just sort of evolved on its own for about 10 years. And then you had the motion picture, and the motion picture, as you talked about last episode, was sort of an outgrowth partly from that fandom as it had developed over the 10 years. Star Trek II drops all of that. Because they brought in Harv Bennett and Nick Meyer to make Star Trek II, and they weren't involved in Star Trek fandom. They weren't involved with organized fandom. They weren't involved in letter-writing campaigns. They weren't involved with conventions. They weren't involved with Star Trek The Motion Picture. They're coming at it completely fresh. They sit down and watch the 79 episodes of the original series. And that's all they've got. And based on that, they come up with Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Which is a sharp departure from what Star Trek fandom had evolved into in the 12 or 13 years since Star Trek went off the air. But not as sharp a departure from what the original series actually was back in 1968 and 69. True, yes. And it was also around this time that a lot of fandom creations like RPGs were developing around... I don't remember when it was that the uh, FASA Star Trek role-playing game came out... Uh, but that was something that was going on in fandom as well. People were, you know, taking these things that were set in Star Trek and using it as an apparatus to create stories. A little like fanfic, but in a gaming setting, which is a little more close to how fandom evolved following this movie. Because it was, of course, a big financial success. Finally, Star Trek had something that was legitimately successful. Yes. Like, like, like Todd said, if this movie had been a failure, like... I mean, Star Trek 1 wasn't a failure, but it didn't make anywhere near its production cost. If this movie had not recouped its production costs and been a financial success, odds are there wouldn't have been a Star Trek 3. 
quite possibly. I, I often think if Star Trek had failed at any point during this time, like if they had gone ahead and made Phase 2 in the 70s and then that had been cancelled and everyone just forgot about it, or if Star Trek 1 had flopped, or if Star Trek 2 had flopped and the franchise just failed, then it probably would have just been like a hokey 60s show that got a soulless movie, you know, mocking it in the 90s, like the Brady Bunch or Partridge Family or whatever that was. Yeah, we'd still we'd still have Galaxy Quest, right? I mean, is that what you're kind of? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're exactly right. It would probably be Galaxy Quest. It, it can exist outside of the the continuum of the movies. That's I don't funny. Think that would have happened? Because I think Star Trek was already too big for that. Like, even if it didn't continue as a film franchise, I mean, it had already been twelve or thirteen years since the series went off the air, and they were still publishing fanzines. There was an ongoing novel series by that time. There were, like you said, RPGs. There were quote-unquote non-fiction books about, like, the technical aspects of the ship. There were conventions all the time. There was, you know, fan-published fiction zines. All of that was still going on. You didn't get that for the Brady Bunch. You didn't get that for Car 54, Where Are You? So I think that sort of thing would have continued, but it would have evolved very differently, absent from an official... Paramount produced Star Trek products to guide it. The actual original series was much more profitable in syndication than it ever was originally, you know, right. on, on NBC. And, oh, for sure. Yeah, syndication you know, would have continued to pace even if the movies flopped. Right. You know, I, I got into it in my, I don't know, I was five, six years old and I was watching the original episodes. I can remember watching the Horda episode when I was a little kid. Um, Duel, let's see, what, what was, uh, the Nazi one. I can remember. <laughs> I remember a lot of the episodes just from watching them in in Saturday Night Syndication on Channel Forty here, and I so I was very excited. I even knew who Khan was before I saw Star Trek Two. It was a big thing. It was it was a better TV show than some of the other contemporary shows that we were seeing in the late seventies, like Buck Rogers or Battlestar. <laughs> you know, these fifteen year old reruns were still more vibrant, more present. I, I just think Star Trek Two is much, much better film than Star Trek the Motion Picture for a lot of reasons. It's definitely got the pacing that kind of keeps you hooked in. And it's definitely got characters that are more vibrant. Can I put out one thing I noticed while we were watching it kinda of late in the movie, it so just it sort of dawned on me. They reuse all the sets from Star Trek One. Yeah. And this is the same Enterprise. The same model, the same effects shots, uh, as you so, pointed so out. in the first part of the movie, And yeah. it's the same sets inside. It's the same consoles, it's the same chairs, it's the same display screens, it's the same control panels that people are pretending to use. It's all the same, except it looks so much more vibrant in this show. Just because the little fake control panels with the little fake buttons, they're lit up green instead of lit up plain white. Or this one's lit up green, and this one's lit up red, and this one's lit up orange, instead of everything being lit a pale white. It just looks so much more vibrant and so much more interesting, just from that one small little change. Other changes, too. I mean, everybody's wearing better costumes, better uniforms. The maroon or red is a lot cooler than just the solid grays and whites that you saw in the motion picture. And those jackets are a lot better than the pajamas. <laughs> yeah, and and they don't have random like medical scanner fanny packs and, and and just some of the weird costuming decisions in the motion picture. Although they keep the costumes from the motion picture that were actually good. They have the engineering radiation suits 
and Dr. McCoy still has his same shirt, except now he has an undershirt under it, so you're not seeing his chest hair. Is that the same shirt? Because in Star Trek 1, he was wearing a jumpsuit with those epic lapels, and in Star Trek 2, yeah. it's a like a separate shirt and pants. He has a couple of different costumes in Although he in still the first ha- one. he still has epic lapels. Everything McCoy wears, other than the maroon jacket, everything else he wears has epic lapels. His civilian clothes when he gives Kirk his birthday present, his medical shirt that he wears in sickbay, even the field jacket that they wear when they go to the regular one station... Everything has epic lapels on it. I want to talk about that scene in in, uh, Kirk's apartment with McCoy as well, because I think that shows a little bit of what this movie is doing to humanize the characters a little more. Because in Star Trek 1, you see Kirk at Starfleet headquarters and at the space station before he goes over to the Enterprise, and he's in official settings. He's speaking in these short, clipped sentences about military procedure. I'm going to have this meeting, and it's my intention to be on board that ship. And, you know, he, he seems clamped down. But in this movie, we see him in his apartment, in his home environment. There's a fireplace. There are decorations. McCoy is there to have a conversation about their friendship. It's doing a lot more to humanize Kirk, and McCoy, too. All these men are single. Yes? I mean, Kirk's always been a swinging bachelor who's always had different partners throughout the course of the series, but he doesn't hook up other than maybe a little bit of bonding with Carol Marcus later in the movie. You know, we don't get the scene that any of them ever settled down. Not Scotty, not Sulu, not Ch- not, not any of them. In what life does this happen? Well, I, I think that might happen sometimes in military life, really. I guess... I guess. I, I, I don't see it. I mean, that's, it's just interesting to think that none of them settled down. I, I, I don't know. I was just thinking about that. Well, we don't necessarily know that. Because, like you just said, we, we this is the first time we see Kirk in his home. So we know he hasn't settled down. But we don't know what any of the other people do when they're not on the ship. I mean, we do find out in a later movie that Sulu has a daughter. And we find out in this movie Kirk has a son. So we don't know, you know, Chekhov may have a wife and kids in an apartment on Denova. We don't know. Could be. Could be. Uh, that might have been an interesting thing to explore that the movies never quite see fit to explore. Well, the movies never, they never explored, but they never contradicted either, you know? Yeah, any, true. Any one of these characters could have a family on a planet somewhere that they visit during their shore leave and when the ship is in for dry dock and stuff like that. We, we never hear anything one way or the other, so it's not impossible. Hmm. So write hmm. your fic. There we go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, I don't. I kind of imagine Uhura leading a personal life a little like uh, Donna from Parks and Recreation, where she is like this incredible woman who has men falling over her all the time, but she's too good for them. <laughs> that would be fitting for Uhura. Treat yourself. Yes. Treat yourself to the best space earrings. So let's see. So the movie starts with, I'm not going to go over the plot, but I, I do want to have, I have some questions because I've, I've never thought about it. Uh, was Kobayashi Maru a thing before Star Trek II? No. Okay. Invented no. a conceit invented for this film. Yes, totally. Uh, Star Trek had never really explored the training process pretty much at all. I mean, there was one episode where Kirk's school bully came back, but that, that was it really. 
So the, the Kobayashi Maru is completely invented for this movie to highlight the sorts of decision-making that it's going to have Kirk have to do later. The whole conceit of the no-win scenario and the fact that he never faced the no-win scenario because he refused to. Uh, that, that's something else about Kirk's characterization in the movie. I'm wondering if the movie is trying to be a little more critical of Kirk than collective memory and fandom would really allow it to be. Because David Marcus shows up, and this is something that makes Kirk a little sad. That there's this, you know, whole human being who's his son that he doesn't know and is introduced to him by wanting to kill him. Carol Marcus is, you know, an old flame of his, but that's not treated as a fun time happy thing. That's treated as... An old wound. A, an old wound, a source of melancholy. You know, he, he rebukes himself almost toward the end of the movie for not having actually faced the no-win scenario. It's kind of interesting. He is presented somewhat flawed here, and, you know, he's, you know, he's in that elevator scene with Savick, and he's dressing her down, and the spot with he and McCoy, he's, just, he's realizing he's growing older, and he has these regrets. It sort of makes him out to be a hypocrite. Because he's dressing down Savick for, you know, you have to face the no-win scenario, and sometimes there's no way to win. Did you ever consider that? And Maybe you should think about that. And meanwhile, he's sitting here all smug, like, I don't believe in the no-win scenario. Until all of a sudden, Spock's dead. So everything right. he was saying to Savick at the beginning of the movie, he's just being entirely hypocritical and talking out his ass. Yeah. Yep. Also, the whole action of the movie is built around one bad decision that he made 15 years ago. Yeah, which which apparently he never like made a log entry about, or Starfleet never kept record of. I mean, how does Reliant go into the SETI Alpha system and not have everyone aware, oh, this is where we left Khan? And by the way, how can they not count the planets out from the sun? One, five, two, six. three, four, five. That's SETI Alpha 5. How do they think it's six when it's five? Just count them. If you think it's five when it used to be six, that's one thing. But how do you think it's six when it's really five? One, two, three, four, five. Well. Yes, I, I do suppose that's the kind of thing you have to accept in order for the movie to happen. Also, why can't Terrell and Chekhov beam up from inside those cargo containers? Why do they have to go trek a half a mile through the sandstorm to their original beam-out spot? Is that like the only place on the planet you can transport to and from? This movie is so riddled with, with, with logic mistakes and plot holes. That's why nobody likes it. Yes, we like exactly. It. We like it in spite of those things. <laughs> Remember just, that for years it was every even movie is good, every odd movie is bad. And, and, <laughs> and so Nemesis, right? That is something that I am going to want to examine as we go through the movies here. Yeah, I guess but, I add that to the notes for Star Trek 3. Yeah, add that to the notes for all of them, really. But I have never held truck with the even-odd distinction. Okay. I, that, that has always seemed errant to me, because I am a much bigger fan of some of the odd-numbered movies than a lot of other people are. I think 3 gets a bad rap, but... I guess I'm looking forward to hearing you talk about Star Trek V. Oh, 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 oh. Star Trek V. We'll, we'll, we'll get there, I suppose. We, we, we will get there, yes. Uh, look forward to hearing us talk about Star Trek V and Seven. Star Trek V is about the kirkiest Kirk moment that Kirk ever kirked. Oof. But enough about Shatner's folly. We'll, we'll get back to it. 
enough about Shatner's folly. We, we still have to talk about Kirk's folly. Yeah. Where, you know, these, these decisions are, are coming back to haunt him. His gallivanting around the galaxy, siring a child, and then moving off is coming back to haunt him. Now, here's a question. Does Kirk know about David or not? Cause I believe he, he knows. Well, when he first encounters him, the first thing he says to Carol is, Is that David? Implying he knows they had a kid and he was named David. But then the next scene, he says, I stayed away like you wanted me to. Why didn't you tell me? Implying that he did not know that there was hmm. a child. So which is it? I think he probably did. I think that was uh, a little more heavily implied. Like he knew he would be a terrible father... You know, this is a, probably a better choice for you to never even talk about me or just raise him as though I never existed in his life. Well, I actually kind of like the uh, mirroring between Kirk and Carol Marcus because she is presented as equally headstrong and equally confident. And equally dedicated to her career. Exactly. And so yep. it's that thing that's done in Star Trek a few times where, you know, two people have a relationship and then say, well, we're both too dedicated to our careers. Our love cannot be. But I think it's really nice how she is presented in this way and not criticized for it, I think, by the movie at all. She is just as dedicated to her career in science as Kirk is in his career in military exploration or whatever it is Star Trek wants us to think Starfleet does this week. Gallivanting around the galaxy. Gallivanting around the galaxy, basically. It's, it's a thing to be dedicated to. And that is a totally reasonable dedication by both of them, I guess. Yeah, they don't make her look bad. They, they actually present her as kind of a genius, right? She's the main brain behind Genesis, correct? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's amazing. That's pretty great. I liked it at some point, assuming that Kirk knew about the child, as implied by the first line and seemingly contradicted by the second line. Yeah. I like that they apparently at some point had a conversation about, you know, I'm going to be a research scientist and work on these research projects, and you're going to be on a starship galvanting around the galaxy, and really only one of us can have a child with us on any sort of a regular basis. So let's go with that. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, you know, how people would have to make their decisions in the, uh, in the 23rd century. Utopian 23rd century. He probably had a ro robot nanny. I, w I wonder if Kirk feels regret that he didn't get to... That he had to give up seeing his child grow up in order to gallivant around the galaxy and he puts a bug in someone's ear that eventually results in the 24th century policy of having families on board starships. Ah, that'd be an interesting thread to follow up through. Somebody Con. write a fic. And meanwhile, Khan's putting other kinds of bugs in people's ears. Transition! We love transitions! Uh, yes, yes, Khan. About Khan. Uh, right before I watched Star Trek II to prepare for this, I also watched Space Seed, the original episode with Khan. And I was expecting a lot of the backstory there to kind of get jettisoned. It's not totally jettisoned in the movie, it's kind of treated quickly summarized really briefly in, in his scene in the cargo container with Chekhov. Yeah, there's like one speech where he like just shares enough to bring the audience up to speed and then quickly moves on. Yeah, he, he, he gives like a general declaration of, you know, in my time I was a prince rather than saying, you know, I was a warlord who almost took over the world in 1996. Well, he does, he does give an explanation of, you know, we're from the late 20th century and we were in cryogenic sleep and Kirk woke us up. 
Yeah, but there's a sense in Space Seed that that episode is kind of treating Khan like one of the capital letters, great men of history. Yes. You know, there are scenes where the crew talks about their respect for him as a tactician and as a leader figure. Well, they can... They do a whole scene about how they sort of admire his leadership and admire the success that he achieved while deploring his methods and deploring some of the things he did. Which is sort of an interesting parallel to liking the episode Space Seed while deploring the rather ridiculous amount of sexism and misogyny in that episode. Oh, yes. That episode is is horribly, horribly misogynist. Oh, good lord. Uh, the, the treatment of uh, Lieutenant uh, MacGyvers, who feels this instant gravitational pull toward Khan and starts... Which is oh, apparently only increased when he, like, slaps her and throws her to the ground. Oh, yeah, when there's this whole scene where he exhibits, like, textbook abuser behavior. I mean, he almost negs her into helping him take over the ship. Almost? Well, uh, the pickup artists hadn't invented that for a few decades. She definitely had Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, instantly, too. <laughs> yeah. And that sensibility is jettisoned, because, of course, Lieutenant MacGyvers is fridged for this movie. Well, everyone gets fridged. If you look at the people that are with Khan in Space Seed, it's a rather diverse group yes. of 20 to 30-year-old people. 30 years later, he has a group of universally white, almost universally blonde, 20-year-old yep. people. They all look like Malibu Ken. <laughs> where, where, they would have been five at the time of Space Seed. Where was right. this whole crew of five-year-olds, and where did everyone from Space Seed other than Khan go? Yeah, only Khan aged. Everybody else, Joaquin, they're all, uh, I don't know. Maybe he grew them. Maybe he cloned them. I don't well, know. I thought that, and then there's various fan theories about this, but Khan specifically says, when they're in the cargo bay with Chekhov and Terrell, he specifically says, these people swore their allegiance to me 200 years before you were born. Not their parents swore allegiance, or not, right. you know, I these people belong to me because they, they swore their allegiance at some point after we were marooned here. These very people were with me 200 years ago before we went into cryogenic freeze and apparently de-aged since we were marooned here. De-aged oh. and their skin blanched and their hair blanched. Yeah, the movie is being super obvious about casting a bunch of, like, Aryan Ubermenschen to be Khan's group. Even while, at least, it brought back Ricardo Montalban. Yes. Uh, who, who, is, who is, of course, incredible. Hashtag prosthetic chest. It's <laughs> you know, everyone involved in the movie swears up and down that that's actually his chest. Wrinkly face, wrinkly neck, wrinkly arms, smooth, bulky chest. Well, I don't know about that much, but, but like, everyone swears up and down that he was, like, legitimately buff. Uh, it could be, like, a Vince McMahon situation. It could be. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> um, but, 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 yeah, uh, Ricardo Montalban is just an incredible actor. And someone who really pulls off the um, turn that Khan has taken in the last 15 years from super charismatic Superman to this, like, maniacal madman. You know, he's, yes. been, he's been cooped up in this tiny little cargo container in a desert storm for years, and all he's had to read is a middle school library. 
You know, when, All he's had to do is find someone else to blame for his predicament and then nurse his hatred for that person. Yeah, you see even when, um, I think it's Terrell first mentions that he's an admiral now and Khan's face lights up. Admiral! Like, admiral. He, he, he has been nursing this grudge for years and years and years and now he has a small piece of new information. <laughs> You know, the, the first thing that he hears from the outside world. And so this just gets integrated into this grudge that he's been nursing. Oh, he gets to advance in his career and his life while my life has been constrained and awful. It's a shift, I think, from what his characterization was, but I think it makes the movie a little stronger because it doesn't focus on any of that great men of history crap. Well, it's good that they jettisoned that whole Great Men of History stuff. At the same time, they sort of did what they did later in DS9 with Gold Ducat, was they took a rather nuanced, interesting adversary and basically reduced him to just an insane, crazy, evil person. You know, Khan from Space Seed was calculating and manipulative and charismatic and he had the genetically enhanced strength and intelligence. And he had all these aspects that made him such a formidable opponent. Khan in Rathacon is just a crazy person bent on revenge. And at no time does he even see Genesis as like a second chance for him and his life. Yeah, they, you know, could, they could go and detonate that torpedo on SETI Alpha 5. And then live in a paradise. And apparently he doesn't want to do that. Which brings up another point. I don't know that anywhere in this movie they actually explain why is Khan so obsessed with Genesis. I mean, he goes, he finds the ship that's working on Project Genesis, and somehow he becomes obsessed with obtaining it, and I don't understand why. Yeah, I think that's probably just because that's the thing that Kirk was involved in tangentially. Well, Kirk wasn't involved in it. Kirk wasn't involved in it at all. Unless you're saying Khan knows about his 20 years ago relationship with Carol Marcus. No, it's... it. I think it's something that he was involved in, you know, administratively as an admiral or something, and then when Captain Terrell mentions him, Khan feels that this is his way to, like, get embroiled in it. I don't I don't think anywhere in the movie it suggests that he's involved in it administratively. Well, why else would he uh, have the summary and everything that he calls up? Because all Starfleet computers are linked? Well, maybe uh, because he remembers Chekhov, and he says, oh, well, Chekhov's involved, maybe I can get to Kirk through Chekhov here. Yeah, that too. Why do you have on your computer an article about the quarterback of the 1967 Baltimore Colts? I bet you could pull one up in about 10 seconds, couldn't you? Yeah, I probably could, but it's also not classified information that requires a retina scan to access. Well, he's an and admiral. He can access classified information. And it's also, you know, not 1982. How common was knowledge of computer networking in 1982? It's not 1982, it's 2280-something. Let's watch the tape. Let's get the tape out. <laughs> yes. Recall <laughs> it from our data tapes. Yeah. But it's, it's a good thing we have universal... We, we can see all the holes and we can talk about this. It's really something that can unite us. Get it? Unite us? Yes, thank you. <laughs> That was a stretch, but I'm glad you got it. <laughs> Not too much of a stretch for this show, buddy. As I understand it, puns are a big deep part of the spectacular. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> as much as we can manage. 
So Khan has lured Kirk into his trap. Meanwhile, we've got these bugs that control the cerebral cortexes of Terrell and Chekhov, right? They can, uh, and how does Khan control the bugs? Or Khan, it just makes them susceptible to suggestion? Is that what's going on? That's what they say, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, the bugs just latch on to, uh, to their brains. As a kid, that really grossed me out, and I, I thought about it a lot. You know, it was the kind of thing that haunted my nightmares for years were those bugs, the little armadillo things that would crawl in and surround your brain through your ear. It used to gross me out so much. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I was kind of uh, afraid of insects as a kid, and I wonder if that might have been a part of it. Star Trek Two gave you a fear of insects? Well, I mean, you know, creepy crawlies that can crawl into your ear. Yeah. You know, the the um, bed that I had when I was a small child was right under a bookcase. So the bottom shelf was, like, kind of near my head when I was asleep. And I kept imagining, like, things crawling on the underside of the bookcase. Yeah, it's gross. I still think about, you know, I used to just, uh, I don't know, fixate upon that thing. And when Kirk shoots him with the phaser and you see the bloody, bloody bug, that used to bug me, too. I think it's very convenient for Khan in that scene that the Starfleet EVA suits that they wear down to the planet have a nice convenient handle on the front for him to lift the check off by. Well, you know, you got to be able to grab it off the rack. <laughs> I wonder when Chekhov and Terrell put those suits on, did they have to sit through a 45-second audio recording explaining how to use them? Uh, not in the director's cut. It, does the director's cut have more stuff on the engineering department? Is that that my recollection? Where there's more stuff that that um, the kid that looks like Peter North is he? Yeah, is there, he actually he, he turns out to be Scott's nephew or something, right? Yeah, there's a scene explaining that Peter Preston is Scotty's nephew, so it hits okay. even more when he dies later in the movie, and Scotty takes him to the bridge to show everyone that he died. Uh, th yeah, Scott Scott brings injured crew members straight up to the bridge because that's where McCoy's always hanging out. <laughs> well, that's something else that I thought might have been a little more of an implicit critique of the original series, because, you know, in this movie, they at least try, with all the Peter Preston stuff, to make one of the redshirt deaths count. You know, instead of just random people you've never seen before and will never see again getting offed by the enemy to try to introduce a sense of tension, there's a character who's at least had a few lines, and in the extended cut, director's cut, TV cut, whatever you want to call it, is identified as a nephew of one of the characters we actually do care about. And so it's trying a little bit to make it count. Well, I'm not sure how much they succeed in that, because it occurred to me at the end of the movie when they're doing Spock's funeral, and Kirk's, like, you know, very gravely intoning, we're gathered here today to pay respects to our honored dead. And my first thought was, was Spock the only one that died in this battle, or do they have to do this, like, 200 times? And then my next thought was, did they do this for midshipman first-class Peter Preston? That's a lot of bagpipe playing, my friend. Yeah, it's a lot of time for the entire crew to be gathered in the torpedo bay as you shoot crewman after crewman out into the Genesis planet. Yeah, if they shot him out of the Genesis planet, that has uncomfortable implications for the next movie. Yeah. It sure does. Star Trek Three: The Search for 74 <laughs> Crewmen. Uh, you think Scotty would be more, uh, even more dedicated to the mission in Star Trek Three? Star Trek Three: The Search for Midshipman First Class Peter Preston, sir. Yeah. Man, we're coming up with all kinds of fic. <laughs> Big threads. Well, they just revived the Strange New World short story competition, so, you know, we should write something and send it in. I, I've heard some unfortunate things about that new competition. I'm not, I, I don't know the whole story on it, so. 
at no time does Khan get off the ship, right? Once he's on the Reliant, that's it. Yeah, so. that's one of the really interesting things is this whole movie is sort of Kirk versus Khan, and they're never... William Shatner and Ricardo Montalban were never on set at the same time. They never share a scene. Yeah, I wonder if that was deliberate or if it's just, like, sloppy screenwriting or if it's... Uh, forced due to uh, Ricardo Montalban's filming commitments for Fantasy Island. I don't know if I'd call it sloppy screenwriting, because look what happened in Nemeshit when they tried to, like, force a face-to-face confrontation with the enemy on the other ship, rather than just let them be on the other ship. (sighs) Nemeshit has a lot to do with the impact and the influence of this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, this, This movie... Whatever the virtues of this movie, and they are great and we're talking about them, it exerts this pull on the rest of the movies from here on out, basically, that with one exception, uh, that turned out to be one of the most successful of the movies, but with one exception, all of the movies from here on out feel this need to have a big movie villain and to have this, like, iconic antagonist. And sometimes they get close... And a couple of times it's good, but often it just fails. Sometimes it winds up with a good movie, but they never actually... Every movie that comes out, somebody during a pre-production interview says, This is going to be the best villain since Khan! And it's never true. That is a point where I can understand the people who are kind of fed up with this movie, and the people who kind of roll their eyes at this movie, because I don't want to say a lot of it has become so cliché. Some of it probably was cliché already for movies. It's become such a cliché for Star Trek. Well, that's not Ratha Khan's fault. That's everyone else's fault for trying too hard to emulate Ratha Khan and being bad at it. I think, and I hope... Into Darkness is the very last attempt to anybody has at trying to remake Rathacon or, or use any of it because it failed spectacularly at the things that Rathacon did well. So I was going to say Into Darkness was such a great success at trying to emulate Rathacon that no one else should try anymore. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> we got we got ten movies to go. But <laughs> oh yeah, this one at least uh, Into Darkness explicitly. Copied it. I mean, it, it didn't just copy it. It, it yeah. was frame for frame. It was the most loving homage that Abram Abrams definitely made that movie because he loved Wrath of Khan so much. It just didn't, to me, have the impact because he didn't earn it. Other like, movies Rath- try to copy what Wrath of Khan did to try to copy its success. Into Darkness is flat out AU fan fiction of Wrath yeah. of Khan. Yep. And only Khan is much, much different. <laughs> there are lots of different. Carol Marcus, much, much different. Yes. So, we never have a face-to-face Kirk-Con confrontation. Right. We have a lot of uh, confrontations on the view screen or over the communicator in ways that, um, I think Shatner and, and Ricardo Montalban were never actually in the same place at the same time. They just had, like, script assistants reading their lines yeah. off screen. Yeah. Uh, so that is... Yeah. Well, they actually couldn't be on set at the same time, because the Reliant Bridge was just a redress of the Enterprise Bridge. So if was Kirk it really? Was there, yeah. So if Kirk was there filming on the Enterprise Bridge set, it couldn't also be the Reliant Bridge set at the same time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it, it's, a li- it's a little disappointing that they didn't really get to play off each other face-to-face, although I think it's a testament to both actors that it still kind of feels that way. Oh, yeah. Because they're, ta- well, they're talking over the view screen and they're talking over the communicator. It's, they go back and forth. 
You're right. And the way they film these movies, even if they're on set at the same time, they're not necessarily talking to each other. You know, if they're filming Khan's close-up, Kirk could be off in his trailer having a sandwich, even if they are on set at the same time, so they take occasional shots of the two of them standing next to each other. When each one does their close-up, the other one's off having lunch or talking to their manager on the phone or something. So it's not that much of a departure from just regular movie making for them not to be on the set at the same time. Right, I suppose. But I feel it really is a good job that's, that's done by both actors to kind of paper over that and kind of make it feel like all of the intensity is still there. Okay, I feel like we've had a pretty good discussion so far. I hope we will continue having a pretty good discussion after we take this quick break to hear some ads for the podcast network that we are on. We will see you on the other side. consideration paid for by the following what's up everybody this is kevin kelly make sure you check out every episode of the kevin kelly show right here on the place to be nation place to be nation.com the kevin kelly show every episode is a winner at least we hope place to be nation's justin rosero here in addition to the kevin kelly show we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on itunes and place to be nation.com you can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast, with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current day wrestling with main event, Mission Indie Possible, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on WWE, NXT, and Ring of Honor Super Shows. And relive wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series, led by Ben Morse, and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. we got sports covered, too, with the Sports Evolution Mega Show with Scott... Dr. G, Cowboy and Cowboy Sr., the Kings of Sport, led by Live Audio Wrestling's godfather Nate Milton, as well as the NBA Team Podcast and the TJ McClune Show. PTBN tackles pop culture and irreverence with Richard and the Mailman, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. And if you like a hybrid of all of this in list form, check out Jordan Duncan's Rank and File. All these shows are available on PlaceTobeNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. We want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats blog of doom be sure to follow us on facebook twitter instagram and tumblr as well placemediation.com the only place to be in your pop culture world this is parv and i'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro wrestling only place to be nation podcast network that's the pwo ptbn podcast network where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zellner's one-two punch of Exile on Bad Street and with David Bickenspan, a smash hit between the sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave, Goodwill Wrestling and the reaction shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We've got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. 
Stephen Graham and Tim Livingstone's Pro Wrestling Super Show, Tag Teams Back Again with Kelly and Marty Sleaze, and a ton of other great shows too. And of course, there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. And we are back. Thank you for staying through those messages about placetobenation.com. Speaking of placetobenation.com, Todd, what have you been up to on the site lately? Is there anything cooking for uh, PTB Comics? I think PTB Comics is just kind of chugging along with uh, an occasional article here or there. We've got the website section up pretty well, though. Uh, on Facebook, there's a separate PTB Nation Facebook comics group. And that's always got some good action, good discussion going on. I think the latest we're talking about is Deadpool and the success, unexpected success of the Deadpool movie on something that was made on about a $40 million budget. It's already made three times that, so that's pretty cool. Cool, yeah. I am looking forward to seeing that uh, this week, probably. Yeah, I, uh, I'm going to probably see it, too, but it, it's not going to be kid-friendly, so got to get a babysitter. No, no. Uh, I've seen many messages from Ryan Reynolds and from Deadpool, the character, telling people not to bring their kids and if you do bring your kids, you're dumb. Don't complain to Fox. <laughs> do you think they would ever make a rated R Star Trek movie? No, most likely not. But they would make a rated X one. They have. <laughs> that depends on what you mean by they. <laughs> not Paramount. No. No, not Paramount. Uh, no, but uh, they, the mysterious they, have, have made X-rated versions of... Uh, Damn near everything, including Star Trek The Next Penetration. There was a rather famous Star Trek The Next Generation porn movie several years ago that was like, it was treated almost like a fan film, like the other fan films that are around. Like they released a porn-free version of it. It was so popular. For people who only wanted to see the plot of a porn movie? Yes, for people that wanted to see this Star Trek The Next Generation fan film without the explicit pornography. They cut the porn scenes and released it as a Star Trek fan film. It was very strange. You know, the Star Trek franchise is a large and diversified field <laughs> uh, that you can find a great many, so, so many things within. Speaking of... We are, are still nominally talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. We've talked about Khan. We've talked about his wrath. The movie they called Wrath of Khan because they didn't want to steal the title from Star Wars Revenge of the Jedi. It was supposed to be The Revenge of Khan? Originally it was supposed to be The Revenge of Khan, but then they found out that the third Star Wars movie was going to be Revenge of the Jedi, and so they quickly fled from any semblance of the word revenge or vengeance and wound up with Wrath of Khan. It's probably a better title anyway. Yeah. 
I wonder if, you know, it, they had to tie it into the Space Seed and the original series, but if somebody hadn't seen that, if they thought that it was really a movie about Madeline Kahn being upset. Oh, that would have been incredible. Why hasn't somebody made that fan film? Oh, that would have been incredible. Someone mentions Admiral Kirk, and they're, they're just, just, just flames on the side of my face. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> oh, oh, forget everything I said about Ricardo Montalban. Where the hell was Madeline Kahn in this movie? <laughs> See, now, I, it, now I'm just disappointed more. With, there's a Mel Brooks prison planet joke. There's something. We can do a lot, lot with this. But let's get back to the actual Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan storyline. Yes, let's. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the characters a little more especially the new characters for this movie. There's something going on in this movie that was kind of swept away in the next movie and proceeding from there, where they introduce in this movie Lieutenant Savick, played by Kirstie Alley, and David Marcus, Kirk's son, who could be, if you wanted to go in that direction, could be literally Star Trek The Next Generation. You know, it's Kirk's son and Spock's protege, and they're on the Enterprise. So that could have been something that was a lot more than it was. Spock's protege, who is training to command a starship, and Kirk's son, who is a scientist. Yeah, exactly. The, ro the roles get reversed, even. Todd, what do you think of Savick and Kirstie Alley in this movie? You know, we'd never seen Kirstie Alley before. I thought she was pretty cool. I remember the Mad Magazine spoof that, uh, of Star Trek II that called her Kirstie Alien. I liked that back in the day. Um, yeah, she was compelling. It was nice to have another Klingon, or sorry, Vulcan that was a real character besides uh, Sarek. And, you know, I, I thought it, she was a, a solid actress and really, really pretty, uh, unique looking. And definitely Kirk was into her, although that kind of stops right away. I think they were maybe leaning towards her and David getting together. Although, you know, the, I guess the, the conversation has to go, go on on Star Trek Three because something happens to her in Star Trek Three that would change that dynamic all the way. Well, a lot of things happen with her in Star Trek Three, really. <laughs> There's a different actress playing Savick, by yes. the way. Yes, yes, exactly. The combination of Savick and Kirk is something that I never really saw that sort of attraction in. I mean, I've chronicled on this podcast before that I am really bad at relationship stuff in movies, and love triangles are kind of like the bane of my existence, in a way. So, Scott, you want to talk about a love triangle, don't you? Well, ever since our first episode where we spent four hours talking about a love triangle, <sighs> I like to enhance your podcasting experience by bringing up a love triangle in every possible setting in which I can. And so I would like to bring up the Jim Kirk, Carol Marcus, David Marcus love triangle of family. Yes, well. Because Carol Marcus has this relationship with Kirk. But Carol Marcus also has a relationship with her son David, who is also Kirk's son David, who hates Kirk but likes Carol. And Carol doesn't hate Kirk like her son does. And there's all sorts of triangular love-related relationships in there. 
I think it's to the credit of the movie that that is not the source of a great deal of melodrama. There's the one scene where David and, and Kirk have their little tussle, and then he's kind of snotty and snide toward him in a couple other scenes. But that's just one note that's hit on among many in Kirk's characterization. Well, the main role of David in the movie is to basically show Kirk what might have been and make him feel like an old failure. Yeah, basically. Uh, Again, among other things. Among, you know, young Lieutenant Savick getting to pilot the Enterprise and all these other things that are going on to make Kirk feel old. Uh, McCoy telling him again... Like, he realized in his character's journey in the first movie that the promotion to Admiral really wasn't the best idea. Spock saying the same thing. Basically, you know, the captaining a starship is your first best destiny. And so, all of the family drama with Carol and David doesn't turn the movie into a family drama. Which I really think is to its credit. Yeah, that would have been a drag if it was just all about the Kirk family dynamics or they end up back together and then... That would, oh, that would have been terrible, Kirk and, and Carol getting together at the end of the movie, and let's go home and start a, a new life together. Let's that go make David a little brother. <laughs> oh, God. And isn't Carol Marcus's, her, her actress name, just incidentally, is B.B. Besh? B.B. Besh? Yes. That's a great name, B.B. Besh. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great name, and I think like you said in... Uh, uh, B.B. Besh. <laughs> it's a pleasure to say, isn't it? B.B. Besh. Stop saying B.B. Besh. As I said before, I think B.B. Besh does a good job, like, imbuing Carol with a lot of Kirk's characteristics. I think she does a good job in this movie, also without coming off as melodramatic. Is David meant to be unlikable as a character? He's got a little bit of, like, snotty dirtbag kid in his character, especially in the beginning. I'm not sure how much of that is that he's supposed to be unlikable, or how much of that is just he doesn't like Starfleet, and thus we don't like him because we like yeah. Starfleet. Yeah, I, I think his scene early in the movie where he talks about how scientists have always been pawns of the military. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, just a reminder, this movie was not made three years into the Iraq War. Yes, well. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, this movie was made at the beginning of the Reagan era. Which is a whole other sort of... Thing, uh, which you might think about the militarization of, of Star Trek as well, if you wanted to be, you know... Well, we talked about that earlier, how it's sort of a departure from the Star Trek image that it had going through the late 70s, but not as much of a departure from Star Trek as it's played in the original series. True. Um, Did I just say deployed instead of displayed? Yes. BB Besh. BB Besh. BB Besh. <laughs> I want my BB Besh, BB Besh, BB Besh. <laughs> thank you for that that is the reason why people listen to your spectacular really because they also want their bb besh bb bb besh Besh kids where were we now well i think that we were getting into how how clever... No, no, we were still talking about the love triangle. Uh, uh, so, no, I was talking about uh, scientists to the pawns of the military. Okay. And I'm, I'm talking about how we get to see Kirk be really clever. Once the Enterprise is attacked by the Reliant, Kirk just goes into, all right, how am I going to outwit Khan? 
and he gets the Reliance drop its shields, and then they shoot him up, and then they effectively cripples both ships for a while, right? Yeah, well, that's a note that I think is also a little better than it was in Space Seed, where the way that Kirk outwits Khan, who has, you know, an explicitly superior intellect, uh, however hobbled he is by his, you know, maniacal drive for vengeance and all that, uh, but the way he outwits him is by understanding the uses and limits of the technology that he's using. Yeah, the way he, the way he outwits him is that he knows the system better. And you see that they show that very well in the movie, because as soon as the shields start dropping, Khan's like, the override, hit the override. And none of them knows where the override is, because they've learned how to use this chip in about ten minutes. Yeah. And immediately set off to go try to annihilate Kirk. And so the camera just sort of pans erratically from console to console, and they don't know where the override is. Yeah, suddenly you see all the other characters using these candy button consoles in, I don't want to say a naturalistic way, but a uh, a, a way that... Um, they will appear much more comfortable with them. Uh, verisimilitude, I think, is the word that I'm looking for. Where they give the sense that they know what's going on. But we, of course, don't know anything because it's anonymous colored buttons. Yeah, all the Superman are, like, poking at the consoles like your grandmother trying to type. Yeah, exactly. And that shot of Khan looking around at the console, I think, is great in that it puts him in the same situation that we are. where We don't know what any of this stuff is. We just know that all the other characters do. I think it's really interesting in that moment when Kirk outwits Khan with the override code. I like Savick's reaction, because Savick doesn't have a clue what the hell's going on, and she's already sort of dismissed Kirk earlier, he's so human, and here he is completely outwitting Khan and completely outwitting Savick, and I think that sort of blows Savick's mind a little bit, like she had dismissed this person as like inferior to logical Vulcan intellect, and here he is completely running rings around any idea she has about how to handle the situation. And I think that's highlighted again later when they're in the Genesis cave and Kirk reveals that he has this secret plan with Spock to get the ship repaired and get them back on board. By and, the book. Yeah. And you see, they show the reactions of McCoy and Savick when Kirk flips open his communicator rather nonchalantly and says, Hey Spock, it's time, let's go. They show the reaction of McCoy and Savick and McCoy just sort of like starts grinning hesitantly. And Savick is standing there, like, completely dumbfounded before she goes into a long explanation about how this shouldn't have been possible, that she's still in the middle of as they're transporting up. And I think the difference in those reactions is purely down to McCoy as more experienced dealing with this Kirk and Spock shit. Yeah, in that moment, Savick is like original series Spock, where she's still kind of nonplussed whenever Kirk pulls one of these things. Whereas Spock, by this late date... Yeah, You know, has seen enough of it, has taken part in enough of it, that he's totally rolling with the punches. See, I, I loved that little contrast in the reaction between McCoy and Savick right there. Because they're, like, right next to each other, and McCoy's got this look like, Ha ha, here we go again. And Savick's just standing there like, what the fuck just happened? It's awesome. It also leads to the funniest moment of the whole film when they get back on the bridge and she confronts Spock about him being complicit in this. And she says, you lied. He raises his eyebrow and says, I exaggerated. And I, I kid you not, in the theater, people clapped at how funny that was. <laughs> it was so funny, you know, out of, you know, con Spock, Spock's development as a character and, and as a foil to Kirk. So cool at that point. It's neat how that laugh line goes to Spock, where most of the laugh lines in this movie tend to go to McCoy. 
Well, yeah, I guess most of them do, because he's the one... He's still sort of irascible. He's still sort of ornery. He's not the buttoned-down military type of person. You know, Kirk is very much the dashing commander, and Spock is the... Spock's the Vulcan. He's buttoned up and following orders and administering his duties. McCoy's the irascible old man who's just had it with all this shit. Yeah, but, I mean, I I didn't see this movie in the theater when it premiered, obviously. But I did have the opportunity to see it in the theater uh, a couple of years ago with with you, Scott. We went to a special presentation of it, and the crowd was really into all of McCoy's laugh lines. Like, when they're headed down to the regular station, and Spock says, you know, Jim, be careful. And McCoy turns around and says, we will! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, that, that was one of the big crowd-pleasing moments in that movie. He just has good comic timing, you know. He is underrated as far as that goes to Forrest Kelly. Yeah, and, and it's a real strength of these movies that the three actors in the main trio and the three characters are presented as being so comfortable with each other. You know, like they've, they've reached a point in their friendship where... They still have that sort of testy interchange between McCoy and Spock in a way that they didn't have in the first movie where everyone was a little more cold and inhuman. In this movie, we get a good, proper argument, like so many in the TV show. And I really like that argument, because it's not manufactured. Because as I was watching that scene, and as Spock is rather dispassionately analyzing the science behind the whole thing, I totally see where he's coming from. Because that's sort of, I have that same sort of mindset. That's kind of what I would be doing in that spot, is, well, what would happen if this? Let's just figure it out, and not considering, oh yeah, we're also talking about wiping out a planet in the process. Whereas McCoy is just horrified at the prospect that Spock can dispassionately discuss the science behind this, without breaking down in sobs over the idea of annihilating a planet in the process. And so that conflict comes about very naturally. It's not forced or manufactured at all. I really I really liked that. I like how uh, McCoy says, six minutes, and he holds out at five and one. You know, he's, he's using his hands <laughs> to show six. Well, we can't, we already know Starfleet can't count to six from the Reliant at the SETI Alpha system. SETI Alpha. We're lucky he didn't hold up one hand and go six. Seti Alpha Five. So as C- Captain Terrell dies, right, he uh, goes crazy and... Well, he tries like hell to resist the uh, suggestion right. of, of the parasite. It's interesting... And he shoots himself. Right. Right, that's it. It's interesting what finally pushes people over the edge, because... Apparently, they didn't resist the parasite when they were on the regular one station, torturing everyone that was there. But when they ask him to kill Kirk, all of a sudden now he can resist. Well, it's Kirk. He's yeah. Admiral. He's well. You can make that excuse for Chekhov, but Terrell's never met the guy before. Starfleet legend and demigod. He just has that level of hero worship for the guy. Well, he has that level of hero worship for the protagonist of the movie. <laughs> I thought Paul Winfield was pretty good as Captain Terrell. It's a shame they didn't use him later or in any other incarnation of Star Trek for anything. Well, he was a guest star in Next Generation at oh, least I once. I but um, yeah, start all the Star Trek movies. They bring in these really good actors to be like one-off guest captains, like Madge Sinclair in Star Trek Four. Yeah, or true. George Takei in Star Trek Six. 
I actually have a personal connection to Paul Winfield. My bosses, or my former boss before he retired, he, he went to Portland State with Paul Winfield and did drama with him there. So that was pretty cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I kind of liked how you get to see another captain in Star Trek, which is always a dicey proposition, and he, he does get possessed by the space parasite, but overall, I think he's a little more sane and competent than a lot of the other captains that have been in Star Trek before. Yeah, he's not Captain Ron Tracy, he's not Commodore Matt Decker. Exactly. He isn't malicious or totally insane, except when acted upon by an outside force. He's just another captain, following his orders, doing his best. Yeah, he's just, you know, out there with Chekhov. Who, among the crew, I don't remember if we talked about this in the Star Trek 1 podcast, I know we talked about this outside the show, Chekhov's the only one of the whole crew who, you know, got another job. Yeah, everyone's at their same station except for the Navigator, where they brought in Persis Kambata in the first movie, and then Savick in this movie, and moved Chekhov over to the torpedo console. Yeah, like, before the movies, he's the only one who, like, went back to school and got additional training or whatever to run the weapons console, and I think he was, like, unofficially security chief or something. And then in Star Trek Two, he's on a completely different ship. He's pursuing his career. I like how, on the Reliant, they follow the standard Star Trek, or Starfleet, or Star Trek. The Reliant follows the standard practice where when they need to assemble an away team to investigate the planet, they send the captain and the first officer. Yep. Yes, exactly. Well, they're not going to send Lieutenant Kyle. <laughs> but as far it's... as we know, the, the Reliant only has a crew of about 15 people, right? We what happens to the rest of the crew? Did they ever follow up on that? Well, they mention at one point that they got marooned on SETI Alpha 5, but that's about it. Yeah, well, they say at the end the Enterprise is going to go pick them up. Okay. I hope so. <laughs> you hope so? You know, unless something happens to distract Kirk by then. I think it's sort of interesting, if you look at the rest of the crew, like, between the end of the original series and the movies, for Star Trek 1, everyone got a bump in rank. By Star Trek 2, everyone is a commander. Lieutenant Uhura is a commander. Lieutenant Sulu is a commander. Lieutenant Commander McCoy is a commander. Commander Spock is a captain. And Ensign Chekhov is a commander. Everyone is up to commander. No matter is- what rank they used to be, Everyone gets, like, one or two or three or four or however many bumps they need to get up to Commander. But they're still doing the same jobs. And they're still doing the same jobs. They're still doing the same job on what appears to be a training vessel. And none of them gets another bump in rank for the next 10 or 15 years. Well, something happens in Star Trek Three that kind of freezes them in place for a while. Yeah, true. Uh, There are issues with career advancement, perhaps, but uh, I guess we'll get there. But meanwhile, Chekhov, God bless Chekhov, you know? He went to Starfleet night school and, you know, it's like a teacher getting his administrative credential or something like that. Yeah, he did the Starfleet equivalent of getting his degree in business management or accounting. He's the go-getter among the crew. He's the one that's not complacent until after Star Trek IV, and then he sort of seems to become complacent. Well, I mean, even by the end of this movie, he got picked up by the Enterprise, and so he just kind of wanders onto the bridge and says, you know, uh, can I help out? Everyone wanders onto the bridge. David Marcus is just sort of sitting there in his preppy sweater tied around his neck. That one yeah. really does kind of mark him as a dirtbag team, yeah, right? Yeah, James Spader kind of thing. <laughs> oh, God, you're right. Well, what's his purpose on the bridge? Just stand around and watch these people try to save everybody's lives. Wesley Crusher. Wesley had a job, at least. 
for a while. Yeah. Uh, D- David is just there to uh, fortuitously know what Genesis looks like when it starts happening. Yeah. And what happens to the guy that Chekhov replaces? You know, if Chekhov falls back into his old job, what happens to that guy? Well, in this movie, presumably that was oh, a uh, a, a cadet or a trainee or whoever was on the ship when Savick was running it as a training cruise. So I suppose when an actual officer comes on board, they you know let that kid go do whatever. But in future movies, he just kind of becomes a member of the staff. Well, he just goes back to being the navigator. Yeah, basically. Once Savick is gone. Yeah. What exactly are Chekhov's duties at the weapons console? Because Sulu is still in charge of firing the phasers, just like he was on the original series. Every time Kirk orders a phaser shot, Sulu is the one that fires the phasers. So, like, does Chekhov just sit there with his finger on the button waiting for the order to fire a torpedo and do literally nothing else? Well, I don't know, maybe he sends a message down to the people at the torpedo bay, you know, start loading them up, the ship is coming back. Weapons prep. I didn't realize they need a Starfleet commander to fire torpedoes and do nothing else. Like, well, he could at least, like, do some filing in his spare time. Well, you know, the ship he was first officer of is trying to destroy them, so he can't go and do the job that he was assigned. <laughs> Can right. we talk for a moment about the deficiencies of Starfleet's fleet deployment strategies? Well, that's something that we can hit on in a lot of these movies, yeah. Because in Star Trek 1, it's said that the only ship in range to intercept V'ger is this totally rebuilt, untested ship with a large contingent of new crew people, some of whom aren't even on board yet, and hasn't even gone through a shakedown cruise to work out the kinks of its new systems. The warp drive doesn't even work, but somehow it's the only ship near Earth that can go out and intercept V'ger. And then in this movie, they say that the Enterprise is the only ship in the same quadrant as the regular science station. The only ship in the quadrant is a training vessel filled with untested cadets learning how to man their stations. Also, isn't it arrogant to presume that Starfleet headquarters is on Earth? Didn't these other alien civilizations develop space travel long before us? A lot of them did, but the general Star Trek conceit is that the humans are the ones who built alliances with everyone and created the Federation, and so the headquarters wound up on Earth. Also because this is the planet where the TV show was made. (laughs) (laughs) I I get your point. I mean, there's a Watsonian and a Doyleist reason for this. So there's only one ship that can go track down Genesis, just like there was only one ship that could go to uh, V'ger. Yeah, well, the, the ship that has our heroes on it has to be the only one that can respond. Because it kind of puts our heroes on the back foot from the beginning, if they're not entirely prepared, if they don't have a full crew, if they need to launch ahead of time. And so that's kind of a storytelling conceit. Yeah, it's definitely a trope that they fall back on repeatedly in the Star Trek films, and it's always kind of ridiculous. You just have to just suspend your disbelief yet again, much like you do when you're watching professional wrestling or reading a comic book. Or doing any of these other things we love to do. Yes, for sure. Break down the uh, GOP con- the debates. Oh. oh, oh, that reminds me. Did I mention how Kirk and David Marcus basically have the conversation from the 2008 presidential campaign? Where Kirk says, ah, oh, just words. 
And David Marcus goes, but good words, that's where ideas come from. <laughs> Which is the debate we all had about Barack Obama in, like, February of 2008. Well, that, that was the debate that people started having about Barack Obama when the thing that they decided to hit him on was that he gave good speeches. <laughs> you know, I guess that's a classic tactic. You know, you, you find whatever your opponent does really well and attack him there, I guess. But, yes, there's the tendency uh, for Kirk in kind of a self-pitying mood there to kind of downplay whatever he did as just words. Whereas Spock, of course, was the one who took action and went to engineering and did something. Well, because if you, if you look at the scene where Kirk speaks those words, he's kind of a dismissive prick to Savick in that scene. Especially since you later learn he never actually faced the test as it was meant to be, or never accepted the test as it was meant to be. Yeah, he never accepted the premises of the test. Which just makes his being a dismissive prick to Savick even more prickish. A little bit, yeah. That's getting back to what I was talking about with uh, the movie being a little critical of Kirk. In a way that I don't think is often remembered, because fans aren't going to remember it that way, because he's our hero. Yeah. And especially when the future movies don't really follow through on that criticism in a way. I mean, no. I mean, we'll get there. They, they present him down the road as having grown through the whole loss of his best friend and, and all that. Uh, yeah, that yeah, definitely. He, he talks about this as an experience that kind of brings death to him in a way that he had never dealt with before. Not even on Tarsus Four when people around him were starving to death, and not even when the space pancakes killed his brother, and not even when a hundred red shirts died, and not even on the Farragut when uh, the uh, cloud monster killed so many of his fellow crew members. You know, he, he's never really faced death, though. You just keel are dying. There's lots, yeah. lots of examples. Not even 20 minutes ago when Khan blew the crap out of large parts of the Enterprise and all the trainees died. Yeah, well, they're, they're just the little people, right? There are six people in the universe who matter to James T. Kirk. And they're all in the main credits. Yes. And they all are commanders, and they all have the same jobs, but they all turn out to be executive producers of Star Trek down the road, too. <laughs> Life imitates art. Um, okay, I think it's time to get to the big thing about this movie. That is, of course, Spock's death, which was mandated that it be in the movie by Leonard Nimoy, who was in his I Am Not Spock phase and wanted, I think, to retire from acting and didn't really want to be identified with Spock as much anymore, and so mandated that if he was going to come back for the movie, that Spock had to die. And so, here we are. We've got a crippled starship that the warp core has is breached, right? Or, I don't understand the science necessarily, that the they, they can't engage the warp drive. Yeah, the warp drive has been sufficiently damaged that it, it is inoperable. Okay, so he goes and... He knows what he must do. He has four minutes, right? What's our countdown? Yeah, they, they have the countdown to uh, the explosion of the Genesis device as Khan's final uh, spitting his last breath at thee. Some of my favorite parts, too, are Khan saying those lines. The, the, everything. His Captain Ahab impersonation. Yeah. Okay, so Spock gets all the way down there and he gets his oven mitts on. Meanwhile, McCoy knows what he's up to, right? And he knocks McCoy out, but before he does that, he says, remember. 
Yes, that whole aspect of it was the subject of some jostling, I think, when the movie was being made, because... Uh, as we'll see in the next movie, Nick Meyer, the director and guy who did the last draft of the script, which went through many, many drafts first, but he did not want any part of bringing Spock back, as would eventually happen. He wanted to kill him and have it be done. He's he's dead, he's gone. Yeah, he refused to have anything to do with Star Trek III when, it, when they decided that they were going to bring Spock back. Even the shots at the end of the movie, where the camera pans over a uh, jungle on the Genesis planet to reveal Spock's coffin torpedo, were not shot by Nick Meyer, were not something that he wanted to put in the movie. Was not in the original cut of the movie, actually. So that was something that was put in without him. But you still have Some Spock mind-melding with McCoy. So I'm wondering where that came in as well. Yeah, you and know? it's not like they filmed that separately. That was Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly. Yeah. Because Leonard Nimoy complained later because they reshot some of that to do a close-up from a different angle in Star Trek Three, And they reshot it with some other guy who just sort of randomly plastered his hand on McCoy's face, and Spock complained about that later. Like, they did it all wrong. That's not where you touch somebody to meld with them. So that was Leonard Nimoy who acted that scene of the mind meld so that they could bring back Spock when he refused to make the movie unless they killed Spock. But he filmed this scene to set them up to be able to bring back Spock. Yeah, I really wonder about that. Not only that, but the thing is called Genesis. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yeah, exactly. There is so much... So much setup that, you know... Yeah, there is so much talk about new life uh, toward the end of the movie. Life from lifelessness throughout when they're talking about Genesis. Yeah, well, they could have maybe they could have like just said, well, his his body was rejuvenated by the Genesis effect, and now it looks completely different. You know, like on a soap opera where somebody's in a horrible car crash and they're in a hospital for two months, and when they come back, they're six inches shorter and have red hair now. Yeah, they could have had a different actor play Mr. Spock. Someone like, uh, let's see, hot actors of the early 80s. I'm thinking Henry Thomas from E.T. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which was out in theaters at the same time Star Trek II was. Maybe Robin Curtis could have played Spock instead of Savick. Mm, bring the bring back B.B. Uh, Vesh. <laughs> I think I, I memorized that whole Kirk-Spock dying monologue or, or conversation and... Every time I watch it, my wife gets annoyed that I'm reading. I'm saying it out loud. I'm saying the lines before they say them. <laughs> but it's a great moment. It's a great death. And even as a kid, I thought, oh, yeah, it's pretty awesome. you know. But I hope they bring him back. Even then, I wasn't sold on Spock being dead, dead. And even my memory is that the coffin was open, which is not true. The coffin is closed at the end of Star Trek Two. Yeah, yeah. But I think just... Before I saw it recently again, I thought, well, it was open, right? It's, no. No, they don't open it until nope. Star Trek Three. Yep. Those gross little warm things on it. But the death scene, I think, is well done in that it's still true to the characters. Again, it's not overly melodramatic. Spock is still doing his, you know, Vulcan stoicism shtick. And Kirk is acting out, of course, because this is an incredibly emotional moment for him. But still, I think Shatner imbues it with that little bit of respect for Spock and his stoicism. 
Have we mentioned yet how Nick Meyer, as a director, got the best performance out of William Shatner? Oh, that's a pretty infamous story. Go ahead. He's he's talked about this, I think, several times, that his strategy was they just basically did take after take after take after take. Because Shatner would film it at first, and he'd be, like, all hamming it up like every William Shatner impersonator does. And then Meyer would go, okay, that's good. Do take two, take three, take four, take 12, take 15, take 22... And eventually Shatner would just get all tuckered out and he wouldn't be hamming it up quite as much and you could just see the emotion so much better because it wasn't under so many layers of Shatner. And so he said that's how he did a lot of these scenes as he just did take after take after take until William Shatner got tired and the performance became a lot more subtle and a lot better. It got smaller. You know, there are moments where Shatner is being very big I, there's the infamous communicator exchange with Khan. <laughs> Re- yes, uh, reverberated, reverberating through. Uh, yes, the, and and even the lines leading up to that, you know, like a poor marksman, you keep missing the target. Well, it's it's, it's appropriate <laughs> there. It's appropriate there because that's not just Shatner hamming it up. That's Kirk hamming it up because he already has his plan to beam back aboard the Enterprise in a couple hours. So he just wants to string Khan along. Yeah. And, and if anything, get him even more upset so that he'll make a mistake. Well, he's trying to use Khan's unhinged, maniacal quest for vengeance against him to make him make mistakes. Yeah, exactly. That moment, I think, is iconic as a moment of hamming it up. But in that instance, it's very intentional. He underplays the death, I think. I mean, he's, he's, he definitely sells it well. You know, you, you believe that he is grieving for his best friend. Yeah, he definitely plays it not as like an over-the-top, yep. large display of grief, but like he's just sort of like in shock. Like, he just sort of sits down and goes, no... You know, oh. he's not like screaming and wailing and rending yeah. sackcloth. He's just sort of, sort of in in a state of shock. That's next movie. Well, I don't know that directors other than Nick Meyer had quite had that skill of taming Kirk. And yeah, who knows? I mean, the, the next, we know who the next movie was directed by, right? That hack. <laughs> that uh, you know, maybe he didn't use that. Maybe he was. I don't know if he was intimidated by Shatner or or what, but yeah, it, it, the way that Meyer got Kirk's scenes to be a little less Shatner-esque was really effective here. I still, you know, I, I flash back to that death scene. It's still still with me. I like how that actual scene referred back to the conversation in Spock's chambers, too. Yeah. Uh, what'd you think of the score of the film? I absolutely wanted to get into the score before we finished up here. The score was by uh, James Horner, who was a young, new, fresh composer at the time. Uh, Star Trek II was really his break, really, because he had done a couple of Roger Corman movies. He had, he had done a couple of smaller movies, but this was his first like real major success. And I think he brought a different sensibility to it than uh, Jerry Goldsmith did to the first movie. Horner's score here is a lot more energetic he really buys into the uh, Space Navy aspect of the movie. His main theme is adventurous and propulsive. I was going to say, the difference between Horner's score and Goldsmith's score is sort of the difference between the movies. Yeah. That, that Goldsmith's score is much more epic and sweeping and ultimately not incredibly action-packed. I mean, it's beautiful to listen to, but it's not exciting in any way. 
Whereas the Horner score is very much about ginning up the excitement that the movie is trying to achieve. Yeah, definitely. It's got that energy in spades. And also in contrast to the first movie where the music for V'ger was this sweeping stuff that was very alien. It had the blaster beam in there to give a really alien effect. The music for Khan doesn't have to be alien, of course, because he's human, but it really centers in on his sort of maniacal nature. Yeah. Like, the, the theme for Khan is a lot more devious. The theme for V'ger is a theme that tells you this is a weird alien thing, we don't know what it is. The theme for Khan is a theme that tells you this is a menace we have to combat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Todd, I know you're a um, musician. I don't know if you're particularly into uh, film music, but what did you think about this? Well, I, I do like how it is a slightly different... It still has that main theme in it, but you know he builds on top of it. What I notice is there's a lot of dead spots where there's just kind of silence for a little bit of the movie. Almost like in Jaws, right? Where there's that dread and just a bit of the quiet. But over the, the course of the submarine-type battle in the nebula, I love that score. I love that kind of chase music. And I do like... I, I, I like Horner's music. I, I find that Titanic's not one of my favorites, but a lot of the stuff he did later is good, too. I still think Goldsmith's iconic next generation or i'm sorry uh motion picture score is better and maybe more i don't know it's it's what you think of as star trek the actual theme uh know? yeah motion picture as a score is something that i probably find myself listening to a little more as i've gotten older and as my as my tastes have changed a little but rathacon is just a classic see i still have very immature tastes well that that is as may be <laughs> I mean, I love the Next Generation theme that originated as the motion picture theme. And the Overture Ileas theme is a great, beautiful piece of music. But overall, I probably prefer the Wrath of Khan score, just because it has so much more energy. It's so much more interesting to listen to. Yeah, it, it is almost, um, I don't want to say sinister. It's just, it's just a little bit more dramatic. How about that? Yeah. True. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can go along with that. And one thing I wanted to mention with the score, aside from the movie, was that the complete score for this movie was released by Film Score Monthly in July 2009, which was one of the first sort of archival releases from the Paramount vaults. It was kind of the one that busted the dam open. A couple of months before this, uh, I think the La La Land label released Airplane, which was the first deal that someone managed to get with Paramount. But Star Trek II, kind of the announcement of that kind of burst the dam in everyone's minds thinking, you know, film score releases happen on like smaller kind of boutique labels. And there are various agreements that various labels have with different movie studios, but Paramount was always reluctant to make any deals with anyone. And so people would make lists of all these things that they wanted to be released, and it would get shot down because, no, that's Paramount, they won't make deals with anyone. And then when Star Trek II came out, everyone realized, oh, these companies, not just one company, but multiple labels, have deals with Paramount now, and that started everyone on kind of diving into the Paramount vaults, and there have been so, so many releases since then. Uh, this was the first archival Star Trek release since 2009, in just a short number of years, considering how long the franchise has been there and how long the music's been there, 
All 12 Star Trek movies have had complete score releases. There have been multiple releases from the TV shows, and this is really where it started. It's pretty cool. How much music does that turn out to be? From Star Trek II, the release is about an hour and 15 minutes, which includes a seven and a half minute bonus track, which is the um, original version of the epilogue, which was scored for a cut of the movie that didn't have those extra shots of the torpedo tube on the Genesis planet. That's why I say that was added pretty late in the movie, because the music was written and recorded for that scene without it, and then an insert was made when they inserted those shots. So, the original version of that is there. It all fits on one CD, unlike a lot of the Star Trek scores. Like you said, there are some moments without score. So, it is, as far as Star Trek scores go, a kind of short one. Was that like a deliberate choice, or is that just because that's the way they did it in 1982? I think that just goes case by case. They decide how much music they need for, you know, do we need music for this scene? Do we need music for this scene? And that's just how this movie happened to shake out. You know, obviously for Star Trek 1, with a lot of those longer sequences without a whole lot of dialogue, needed a lot of music and got a lot of great music to really carry those scenes, I feel, but we talked about that in the other one. But Star Trek 2 had the pacing that it did and the dialogue that it did, and so they made those decisions as they went. It's interesting, the things you learn. I didn't know it had recycled a lot of the effect shots, so they basically had to do... You create the whole nebula sequence and the Reliant model, and then kind of what other things did they create originally for this movie? The the Genesis stuff, I suppose. Uh, yeah, the demonstration video for the Genesis oh, effect. Oh yeah, I should mention that. Yeah, the, the demo video for the Genesis effect was one of the first uses of uh, CGI effects. CGI, yeah. It was the first CGI sequence. Like, there were other films that used, like, bits of CGI yeah, there was, in, com there was, in like... combination with traditional animation and in combination with filmed elements, but the Genesis demonstration video was the first CGI sequence. It runs about a minute long, and it is the first ever in a film completely CGI-generated piece of film. Pre-Tron, right? Where does this line up with Tron? I don't remember exactly when Tron came out, but Tron Tron's was... Tron's 82 also, but... But Tron was another one where it used some CGI visual yeah. effects, but it was always in combination with live-action filmed elements and in combination with traditionally animated elements. The Genesis video sequence is completely 100% right. CG. Yeah, in, in a sequence that was also, uh, while we're talking about the music, was scored by uh, Craig Huxley, who played the blaster beam on Star Trek One. And the blaster beam act is actually in Star Trek II a couple of times, but, like, deep in the background. Is there any Wilhelm scream in this? I don't think so. Okay. Also, who does the narration for the, uh, the CG sequence about the Genesis video? That would be the great B.B. Besh. B.B. Besh, are you sure? B.B. Uh, Besh, I think so. I think it was B.B. Besh. Excellent. Trying to think, any other trivia or aspects of this film? I mean, it definitely laid the groundwork for this three. I, I, I consider two, three, and four to be part of the same cycle, you know? Well, that is a large part of the next two movies in combination with this one, yes, because this one was so popular and so successful. Like, finally, Star Trek did something that was popular and successful, and so it's not just going to let go of that. Well, two, three, four, and five really just come one after the other after the other. They say in this one it's been 15 years since the original series. 
And they say in Star Trek 1 that Kirk's been in Starfleet Command for two and a half years, which means it's been like 12 years between Star Trek 1 and Star Trek 2. That but time, Star Trek 2, 3, 4, 5 all happen right in a row within months of each other. The timeline of the movies gets a little muddied yeah, when, when you try to consider everything. I mean, I tend not to care too much about that sort of stuff, but it's definitely a significant period of time. Well, if you try to get into the minutia of it, you're going to kind of lose your mind because it doesn't all hang together very well. But there has been a significant period of time between 1 and 2, but 2 to 3 is very soon, like within weeks, and 3 to 4 is within a couple of months, and 4 to 5 is within a couple of months. I guess we'll talk about that when we do the later movies. We'll, we'll talk about a whole lot of things. <laughs> well, I wish I could be involved with all of those podcasts, but you have other special guests coming on. Who's uh, coming on? Who's for 3? I think I can announce right now that we have lined up for Star Trek Three the uh, great Tim Capel, also from uh, Place to Be Comics. I think that's a good choice. I asked him to make his pick, and that's the one he picked, and I respect him for it. Oh, I can't wait to hear it. I, I can't wait to do it. Um, <laughs> okay, I think that'll about do it for uh, Star Trek Two. When we have guests on the show, I like to do the uh, What Other Media Have You Been Consuming Lately segment, where we talk about anything really, movies, TV, comics, books, music, podcasts, anything. So, uh, Todd, do you have a couple of things that you'd like to give quick comments on? Absolutely. Yesterday I tried to read something called The Multiversity by Grant Morrison, and uh, it's a DC comic that kind of explains all the inf the infinite Earths that used to be infinite, now there's 52, and I didn't get into it at all. I like the little guidebook in the middle of it, but the rest of it was just kind of pretty pictures, not a lot of substance to get me to read it. So I didn't enjoy it as much as I'd hoped to. However, I am enjoying something called The Fade Out, which is an image comic by Grant Morrison that recently finished up its run. All the third trade paperback was shipped to me today, so all three of those are available, and it's a really good story about Hollywood in the late 40s. Uh, kind of a film noir kind of tale. Really good. And last night, I started a mini marathon binge watch of Better Call Saul first season, and it's awesome. And uh, It's actually a prequel to Breaking Bad, and it's really cool. So I, I think you'd enjoy that. Uh, cool. I um, on, on Netflix right now. Good plug for Netflix. I, I hope they start advertising with us. <laughs> um, I, I've never really been a uh, comics guy, but I'm given to understand that Grant Morrison is kind of esoteric and inaccessible. Is that right? Yeah, in general. Some of his stuff, especially his late 90s work with X-Men and Justice League, is really good. But he's he, that's as though he goes out of his way to just write things that he wants to show you how much smarter he is than you. Ah, well, I'm sure he is. <laughs> uh, Scott, have you been consuming any media lately other than Star Trek II? Uh, not really. I guess I watched X-Files. Yes, well, uh, we did a podcast uh, on the X-Files, and, uh... My friend Andy really likes X-Files. Really? I should talk to him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, well... I did listen to that podcast. Yes, I did. Cool. Thank you very much, sir. Your patronage is appreciated. As is your patronage, dear listener, for, uh, uh, listening to us talk about Star Trek Two. All of this time that we have. Thank you very much. We will be back soon with Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock. Spoilers. <laughs> we will see you then. Until then, you can find me on the internet at Glenny Bun on Tumblr and on Twitter. 
Uh, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions for the show, you can comment on the show notes on the posts on Place to Be a Nation's Facebook pages our various online representations, or you can email me, Glenn B. that's with two N's, at placetobenation.com. I would love, if anyone would like to send in questions or anything of that nature, I would love to be able to do, like, a pop culture mailbag or a Star Trek mailbag or something of that nature. So send your questions in, and we will get to them as we can. Uh, send them your fanfic, too. Send us your fanfic. We will read and critique. If you've written that fic about how Kirk's sadness over missing David's youth is the reason why Starfleet eventually develops the policy of having families on starships, send us a link to that. We'll plug it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Todd, where can people find you online if you want anyone to find you? Go to placetobenation.com slash comics. Excellent. And while we're talking about PlaceToBeNation.com, go to PlaceToBeNation.com slash Star Trek to find previous episodes of this podcast about Star Trek and everything that I've written about it. Uh, Scott, are you still ghosting? You say that on every episode. I just, you know, want to ask. And now I've asked. Thank you for listening, everyone. Good night. This one's getting a little more fan wanky than I thought it might. We're doing 13 podcasts about Star Trek movies. <laughs>